Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, we left Dr. Smith contentedly painting, unaware that within moments, a cosmic storm of mysterious origin would threaten to destroy our tiny space colony. There! Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I beg your pardon. Well, Penny, what do you think of it? Well, I don't know much about painting, Dr. Smith. Even a rank amateur should be able to recognize my talent as an artist. It burns through the canvas like a beacon, lighting up the depths of darkness. Well, I guess it does, if you say so. When we return to Earth, I shall place my genius on display for all to see. I would like to express an opinion. You have my permission? Uh... If you have a comment to make, make it. I already have. How dare you? What does an insensitive brute like you know about art? You who have never touched brush to canvas? Away, you cackling clod, and leave me to my work. My day of retribution will surely come. Do you see what I see? Well, I think I do. That's good, because I was beginning to think something was wrong with my eyes. Have your fun, Major. Just remember, they also laughed at Gauguin and Matisse. Oh, pardon me. What's it supposed to be? You probably will not understand it, but it represents the inner feelings of the sensitive man in space. Notice the blending of the lights. Warning, warning, dangerous storm approaching. Advisable refuge be taken immediately. All right, let's get inside. What about our equipment outside? No time, inside. Welcome back, folks, for episode 23 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 23rd broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Space Trader. Watching this one, for some reason, Kurt, I kept hearing your voice saying, just go with the flow. <laughs> with the flow, yes. 
Well, I guess we'll get to that eventually. Anyway, a few production notes before we begin with the story. 43-year-old Barney Slater is back again. We both liked his last teleplay for War of the Robots. This tale introduces the archetypal character of the Shady Merchant, out to swindle some hapless galactic rubes. These types of characters appear often in film and make good fodder for storytelling. For example, even Star Trek had its Harry Mudd and Cyrano Jones characters, and the Space Trader is no exception. Slater's silly take on Smith and the robot continues in this story, but by now, we're starting to get used to it. Script editor Tony Wilson earned his keep on this one. There were significant changes and improvements made to Slater's final treatment that I'll try to mention as we get to them. This is 53-year-old Nathan Juren's third effort for Lost in Space. Jonathan Harris liked the director and his work very much, but felt sorry for him. Because unlike Don Richardson, Juran just couldn't handle Irwin Allen's unannounced visits to the set whenever he got word the shoot was falling behind schedule. Hearing Irwin scream, Time is money! repeatedly would, in Harris's words, make poor Nathan hysterical. Yet somehow, Juran managed to become the second most prolific director on the series, behind Richardson. He must have had a family-sized jar of Alka-Seltzer on the set, Kurt. Oh, man. I'm getting a headache just thinking about it. Can you imagine trying to create an artistic scene with Irwin come marging in screaming, I'm not paying for you to set up lights. I'm paying for you to shoot shots. Crank those cameras and grind that sausage. Chop, chop. I mean, talk about a pressure cooker. Yeesh. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that would rattle my nerves for sure. Well, this episode was filmed from the 10th through the 18th of February, 1966. That's six and a half days. It aired on March 9th, 1966, and it got a summer repeat on July 7th, 1966. Now, Cushman points out that the network, not the show's producers, decided which episodes garnered a summer repeat. Those choices were another form of feedback that influenced the direction the show would take going forward. For example, neither My Friend Mr. Nobody or The Sky is Falling were selected by CBS for rebroadcast, yet, despite its issues, The Space Trader was. Let that sink in a little when you think about where Lost in Space is heading with Season 2. Yeah, and of course, uh, by this time, Batman's going crazy on the ratings, so that probably has a lot to do with it, too. Absolutely. All the regular characters are featured in this one. Guest starring as The Space Trader is 61-year-old English actor Torin Thatcher. With nearly 150 credits over 50-plus years, Thatcher made a living playing villains. His signature sci-fi fantasy role was as Sakura the evil magician in the 1958 classic movie, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. A Ray Harryhausen classic. Yes, yes. I love all those Ray Harryhausen movies. Absolutely. Nathan Juren was a fan of the actor's work and is credited with getting him cast in this episode. Thatcher would later appear in one episode each of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Land of the Giants. Nowadays, most movie actors try to avoid TV roles because it's not seen as being serious like the motion pictures are. The same prejudice certainly held true in the 1960s, but unlike today's Hollywood, few movie actors were millionaires, and they still needed jobs between movie roles. So Lost in Space was able to snag great British actors like Torrin Thatcher and Michael Rennie. So those really were the days. They sure were. And I guess they could do pretty well on TV. I mean, they got paid pretty good, I think, for some of these guest roles. So that's... Yeah. And it was only a couple weeks work, you know, if not just like usually a week, sometimes 10 days Yeah, for Lost in Space when the director was about to be truncated. <laughs> <laughs> get it while it's hot. Yep. Well, with that, let's get on with the story. The teaser starts, as always, with the narrator catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. 
This scene opens on a peaceful morning outside the Jupiter II. Dr. Smith, brush in one hand, palette in the other, is concentrating on putting the finishing touches on his latest autistic masterpiece while Penny and the robot observe. Yet again, our resident Renaissance man Smith has the perfect outfit for all occasions. This time he's wearing an artist smock and an oversized floppy beret. I guess since he just got his dark uniform back, he can't risk spilling paint on it. Mm. The large canvas on the easel is turned backwards towards the camera, so we can't see his Mona Lisa, but from Smith's satisfied expression, it must truly be a brilliant use of the oil paints, as always. He backs away from the canvas for a better look, then asks Penny for her opinion on his work of genius. With an unsure look on her face, she avoids answering directly by admitting that she doesn't know much about paintings. Nonplussed by her reaction, Smith claims that his talent burns through the canvas like a beacon, lighting the depths of darkness. When we return to Earth, I shall place my genius on display for all to see. Mm. (laughs) Eager to give his opinion, the robot asks the good doctor for permission to speak. Smith smirks at this, but he grants it. However, instead of singing praise, our computerized critic emits an extended cybernetic groan of disdain. If you have a comment to make, make it. I already have. How dare you? What does an insensitive brute like you know about art? Well, by the way, originally, instead of a groan, the robot was supposed to make a barfing sound, but you guessed it, that was nixed by the Tiffany Network sensors as far too vulgar for the family hour. <laughs> Enraged, Smith banishes the cackling clod to the ship and warns B9 that his day of retribution will surely come. That causes Penny to turn away and bite her lip to keep from laughing out loud at all this. But before the robot can leave, John and Don walk past and are stopped dead in their tracks at the sight of Smith's painting. They can't believe what they're seeing, and Don blurts out that for a minute he thought something was wrong with his eyes. Have your fun, Major. Just remember they also laughed at Gigon and Matisse. Hmm. Well, we're still only being shown the back of Smith's creation, but based on the reactions, this must be a real stinker. The professor steps closer, lifting up the canvas for a better look. With a confused face, he rotates and turns the object, trying to make sense of it. In the process, he finally shows the front of the painting to the camera. And that was a big build-up for what turned out to be some kind of weird abstract art. I, I couldn't find the words to describe it. It's neither fish nor fowl, maybe F-O-U-L, foul, but it was really weird to me. But then again, I'm no expert on modern art. (laughs) Yeah, but wouldn't you love to have that actual canvas on your wall? I mean, that'd be the ultimate Lost in Space collectible, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that really would. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, the envy, the envy. (laughs) Work of genius, as it were. (laughs) Well, with a wry smile, the professor asks, what exactly is it supposed to be? Uh, They won't understand it, neither do I, but Smith explains that it represents the inner feeling of the sensitive man in space. Uh Before they can discuss it further, the robot warns us of a dangerous cosmic storm approaching fast. Oh, Oh boy, and we just cleaned up from the last round of storms. Strangely out of nowhere, an instant gale-force wind fiercely erupts. There's no time to secure their equipment before the worst of it hits, so John orders everyone to retreat inside the safety of the ship. By the way, it was at this point in the production that perhaps the most infamous accident-slash-blooper of the entire series occurred. As our castaways start up the gangway to the Jupiter airlock, pay close attention to the robot. There's a quick bubble-to-tread shot of B9 being pulled up the sloping ramp with a hidden cable. 
As he nears the top, he dangerously tips over backwards. For a moment, you can actually see the entire front of his tread boxes several inches off the surface of the ramp. But the editor cuts away before we can see what happens next. Unfortunately, it's not good. In fact, the robot did fall completely off the ramp, landing hard on its back with Bob May inside. After yelling cut, the crew quickly got him out of the suit, but May was knocked out cold. When he finally regained consciousness, as the story goes, Bob's first words were, Is the robot all right? Yes, thankfully he was, although the suit was banged up a little and the prop crew had to do some quick touching up to hide the bruises. After a short delay in the shoot, May was back inside the B-9 costume and they were all able to get back to work. As they say, the show must go on. That really is amazing because I watched that scene several times thinking, wow, how does he keep his back straight at that angle? Because he's at a 45 degree tilt. Mm-hmm. And he would th- you know, you would think that he would just fall right over. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did do. He did. He did. Well, meanwhile, back on Preplanus, before the castaways have made it inside the ship, the wind has really picked up to near hurricane strength. It's creating a path of destruction through the camp like Sherman's March to the Sea. Somehow, in the confusion, Dr. Smith forgot to grab his painting. With his masterpiece blown off the easel and literally gone with the wind as it's blown across the camp, Smith panics and foolishly chases after it. Seeing this, the professor yells for Smith to let it go and get inside, but he refuses to listen. Repeating his instructions for the others to take cover, John then races after the hysterical doctor, who's still chasing after his loose painting. My masterpiece! My masterpiece! Luckily, Smith catches up to his masterpiece when it gets blown against the base of a large rock formation that just happens to be next to the Robinson's Water Tower. Or is it lucky? Hmm. You might have noticed that elevated water tank in the background in some of the earlier shots. I know I did, and it struck me as odd because, well, one, I'd never seen it before, and two... The last time I remember the Robinsons dealing with a water shortage in the Oasis, they had a tank that was buried in the sand. Where did this thing come from? So I guess at this point, I'm just calling this Chekhov's water tank for now, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. It's like the, uh, the guy wearing the red shirt, the security guy in Star Trek. Whenever he appears, he's about to get killed. Yeah. Especially if they do a nice long close-up on him for a minute or two. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of ironic because, you know, the only other guy I knew that always wore the red shirt was Chekhov. So this was like Chekhov's Chekhov. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's funny. At any rate, with the winds raging, Professor Robinson catches up with Smith, but before he can corral him back into the Jupiter 2, the water tower's legs begin to buckle from the force of the howling storm. John sees the danger in time, and he drags the panicking Smith away from the tower, but without his masterpiece. No, I want my painting! (laughs) A moment later, that large water tank topples off its platform and starts speed rolling across the campsite. In a scene right out of Indiana Jones, the runaway barrel barrels after the two men steamroller style. At the last possible moment, the men duck down behind a conveniently placed hydroponic garden table, which somehow manages to deflect the tank up and over their heads by mere inches. The rolling menace continues its wild ride across the camp until it finally winds up crashing into another ubiquitous rock formation. That was exciting and a little bit too close for comfort. Yeah, who would have ever suspected those hydroponic gardens were built on such sturdy steel girders? <laughs> Whatever was in that water, it sure wasn't heavy water because it rolled right over those plant trays without bending a single rickety leg. Mm-hmm. So it's the miracles of modern steel 
Yes, yes. Well, I did think it was a good stunt, though. I did. I liked it a, a lot. Yeah, and you know, it's like when you mention Indiana Jones, you, know, you keep asking yourself, how many uh, movies did Lost in Space inspire? Because it really did look like that giant boulder chasing after Indiana Jones. Absolutely. That was right what I was thinking. Well, as this extended teaser draws to a close, we're relieved that instead of being crushed like insects, somehow John and Smith cheated death. But they're not out of the woods yet because they're still out in that crazy storm. Peeking out of the ship's half-closed airlock, Don yells for the men to get inside. But Smith, frozen with fear, is still cowering under the garden table, and John can't get him to budge. So now it's Major West's turn to play hero. Risking life and limb, Don rushes out to help the professor pull the rattled Smith to safety. Even as they drag him inside, he continues to wail in agony. No, no, my masterpiece! (laughs) When the hatch finally closes behind them, we cut abruptly to a bizarre-looking bald humanoid. Watching a view screen that's displaying the bedlam at the Jupiter campsite, the strange character has his arms raised like a ref calling a touchdown, and he's laughing maniacally at the Robinson's misfortune. All kinds of questions arise here, Kurt. Well, this scene reminded me a lot of that opening scene for the 1980s version of Flash Gordon, where Ming the Merciless, played by Max von Sydow, is causing earthquakes and hurricanes on Earth using his weather machine and rubbing his hands together saying, We'll destroy the Earth later. I like to play with things a while before annihilation. He also looks very similar to Thatcher with his goatee. Uh, And, you know, again, you can't help but wonder if this is another homage to the original Lost in Space. True enough, but I guess we'll have to wait until we get back from the opening titles to find out what all this means. Turn from the opening credits, we're outside the Jupiter 2. Our space pioneers are watching as that cosmic storm is still raging out of control. The chaotic conditions outside the ship are severe as tables, tumbleweeds, and tons of sand are being windblown helter-skelter all around the campsite. If you've ever wondered why that planet is such a desert, it's because it's always getting cosmic storms and hardly ever gets actual rain. The storm shows no sign of dissipating, and there's no telling how much destruction will be left behind when it finally does end. Let's hope their homeowners' premiums are paid up. Yeah, exactly. Then again, this could be considered an act of God, therefore not covered. Ooh. That's right, or windstorms. They have all sorts of little terminology. It's all the where-to-fours and what-haves. Ooh. <laughs> Well, then we cut back to that peculiar grinning man with the view screen, and this time I noticed there's a buzzing little junior-sized Jacob's Ladder instrument next to it. That made me think this is more than just some closed-circuit TV gizmo, but I wasn't quite sure what was going on yet. Then he turns a dial on the view screen, and as soon as he does, the mini Jacob's Ladder stops buzzing, and the raging storm stops just as suddenly as it started. Hmm, that's weird. Yeah, well, you can call it weird, but you're a denier. It's man-made climate change. (laughs) 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 Touche. That's funny. 
We only got to see the grinning stranger for a moment in that shot, but he's definitely humanoid. The most interesting thing I noticed in that shortcut was that in addition to being bald, he's got an unusual goatee-style beard and mustache along with these curled-up eyebrows. He appears to be wearing some kind of futuristic jumpsuit that has padded rings around the elbows and arms, but otherwise... He looks like a normal human being. Well, little did we know back in the 1960s that men of the future wouldn't wear padded clothing that we saw in Lost in Space or the Jetsons, but rather the super hip ones would wear man buns and dress in actual dresses. (laughs) 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 Oh, how wrong we were. Uh, Yes, I guess that is. (laughs) I guess that's true. Oh, boy. Cutting back inside the ship, everyone's astonished. Penny says, why it stopped. And Don adds, it's like somebody turned it off. Oh, boy. Dr. Smith, still sporting his artist garb, is sitting dejectedly facing the camera with his back to the rest of the family, who are staring out the viewport, still mesmerized by what's just occurred outside. Well, the damage is done, so the adults head outside to survey the destruction and pick up the pieces. John tells the children, including Manchild Smith, to stay inside for a moment. Judy asks Smith if he's coming out to help. Why? To look upon a world of desolation? Mm. Well, she tells him to look on the bright side. After all, they've been through worse things before. Grinning ear to ear, Will and Penny help the glum Dr. Smith out of his chair, and he half-heartedly vows to plunge once more into the fray. But when Penny gives him a friendly slap on the back and tells him, That's the spirit, Dr. Smith. His face sours. No, please. Spare me your youthful optimism. You know, youthful optimism. We we sure haven't seen much of that today, have we? I mean, most of the millennials are convinced the world will die screaming in the next few decades. Of course, they're probably just as wrong as we were when we were young, and we naively thought our future was in space, the final frontier, exploring strange new worlds, new life, and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man, woman, or in-betweeny has gone before. <laughs> so true. Well, then Smith rushes out through the hatch to search for his painting. My masterpiece. My masterpiece. Well, the other grown-ups are busy trying to clean up the mess, and it does look overwhelming. There's debris and damaged gear thrown everywhere. Judy's completely dispirited by the scale of the mess, saying to herself, Oh, everything is ruined. I could just cry. Maureen says she'd cry too if it would do any good. Before John can respond, Major West calls the professor over to look at their water condensation unit or what's left of it. It's been put out of commission by the storm. With their supply tank smashed as well, our castaways are once again facing a critical water shortage. Better save those tears. Mm. (laughs) Good, Good point. John instructs Maureen and Judy to get to work on recovering the scattered remnants of their hydroponic garden, adding that until they get things restored, they're going to have to go on a strict diet of emergency water rations and protein pills. Yummy. (laughs) She reminds John they don't have very much of either. He understands, but for now, they're going to have to make do with what they've got. It's not easy being a space pioneer, is it, Kurt? Well, I mean, you know, where's that youthful optimism we championed earlier? Everything's better in the future. So make my steak pill medium rare. (laughs) We'll get to that. We'll get to that. (laughs) Turning back to Major West, John starts to give instructions on fixing the condenser unit, but stops mid-sentence with an odd look on his face. The camera pans right to show Dr. Smith sadly peering at us through the frame of his tattered masterpiece. Oh dear, and this is the way our world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. Aww. 
<laughs> a little T.S. Eliot there. Yes, exactly. With that, Smith comically throws the ruined canvas back over his head, and the scene ends on Smith's gloomy face. The Robinsons may have lost all their food and water, but the universe has lost much more. The singular expression of artistic talent from the greatest mind in the universe. Indeed. Well, next, some time has passed because the campsite is looking much better with most of the debris cleared. Judy, Penny, and Will are busy tending to their reconstituted garden when Maureen announces that lunch is served. But instead of ringing a bell, she rattles a large pill bottle. Hmm. Yeah, well, like I said, you might as well be optimistic. At least with pills, you don't have to wash the dishes. Ah. (laughs) The kids drop their tools and rush over to join Dr. Smith and Major West, already seated at the picnic table. Judy asks, what's on the menu today? Mom says the menu is unlimited. Mm. So Penny orders a burger and fries. Will says a barbecue sandwich is fine with him. Okay, but you better wash it down with a little water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Judy announces with a big smile, well, she's not that hungry. She'll just take a protein pill and a cup of water, please. Everyone's trying to put a happy face on the dreary fair. Everyone except for old you-know-who. Wearing a morose expression, Dr. Smith glances down at the pill Maureen placed in his palm. Scowling at the pill like it was poison, he plops it down in his empty plate. And I I thought that was hilarious that, like you say, they went through the effort of setting out all these pl- <laughs> place settings at the table just to serve a protein pill and a little sip of water. Yeah, and don't forget that the knife and fork, you know, go <laughs> the opposite side of the spoon. Yeah, whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that would have made me feel ten times worse. (laughs) I cannot go on this way. I simply must have some food. Hearing Smith complain, Don looks up from studying his condenser plans to bark, Stop your belly aching, Smith. We're all in the same boat. Marine and the kids are silently grinning at the melodrama they all sense is about to erupt from Mount Smith. This chemical concoction may be sufficient for you and others, but it hardly whets my appetite. That protein pill contains enough nutrition for your needs. Perhaps for the average man, Major, but I burn up more energy than the average man. Well, I've got just the cure for you, Dr. Smith. And what's that? Don't talk so much. (laughs) Well, that does it for Smith. He picks up the icky protein pill from his plate and slams it down on Don's dish, adding, Be my guest. Then he excuses himself from the table, storming off to sulk over his empty belly. It's another smile-inducing bit of light-hearted comedy, which also causes the others at the table to giggle, along with us. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of ironic that Smith refuses to eat his pill. Maybe he feels it would be cannibalistic since he's such a pill himself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> good one. Well, next we see Will and Dr. Smith are walking through the sandy wastelands of their deserted planet. They're on the hunt for something, not sure what, but Dr. Smith is quickly exhausted and needs to stop for a rest. Taking a seat on a convenient rock, he tells William that he's come to the end of his strength. Will wants to look a little longer, but Smith thinks they're just wasting their time. But then, glancing up, Smith gasps at something. With newfound energy, he springs to his feet and scurries over to a peculiar kind of electronic sign stuck in a dead bush a few yards away. Instead of earth writing, the placard has this strange alien 
pictographic style symbols and a flashing lighted arrow. I guess arrows are universal symbols for this way all across the galaxy, eh, Kurt? Well, actually, that's Fortran. It's an early digitized language of computers. I bet few people recognized it back then, but I used to program in it, so it jumped out at me. Didn't someone mention this in the Cushman books? It's, it's great trivia. The first sign reads, Grand Opening. Uh, then the smaller sign reads, Bargains This Way. <laughs> and the third sign reads, CBS Sucks. <laughs> no, I, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. It's all gibberish. But seriously, in the old days of Hollywood, they used to hire real Native Americans to play Indians and the talkies and the Westerns because they not only looked the part, but they also sounded authentic whenever they spoke Apache or whatever else. But eventually they stopped using them after they realized the Indians were saying vulgar things in their native tongue, which no one in the general audience can understand, but other <laughs> Indians in the audience would start bursting out laughing when the movie played in theaters. So you never know what subversive things underpaid insiders will try to slip into the mass media. <laughs> uh, I never heard that before. Is that true, really? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> no, that's for sure. Well, Will wonders what it means. Dr. Smith suggests they follow the arrow and find out. The suspenseful music is signaling there may be danger ahead, but they press on. A few yards later, they come across another flashing alien sign. The plot thickens. Then there's another one, and another, and another. Hmm, well, well. Wherever this is leading, it must be close, because as the pair snake through and around several large boulders, those signs are now only a few feet apart. Eventually, their journey ends at a clearing where we see a bizarre menagerie of objects, gear, and small shaded tables scattered flea market style around a familiar-looking spacecraft. The sight evokes an astonished golly from Will and a good heavens from a concerned-looking Dr. Smith. And Will asks the question we're all thinking, what do you think it is? If you answered, it's Captain Tucker's spaceship recycled from the Sky Pirate, you win a prize, Kurt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that round circle of lights that they use at the bottom of every ship is going to need its own cast credit soon. It's appearing in nearly every episode. (laughs) I know. Uh, So here's the first part where I said, just go with the flow, Kurt. Just go with the flow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Smith replies to Will that he hasn't the faintest idea what all this is, and there's no signs of inhabitants, yet. Emboldened, the two friends cautiously step closer to investigate. Just as they approach the space capsule, the silence is broken by the aggressive barks of two chained alien German Shepherd guard dogs. They charge at Will and Smith, which causes the good doctor to grab the dear boy and once again use him as his personal human shield. Luckily, our two frightened intruders were just outside the reach of those dogs' chains, but all that noise gets the attention of their master. Stepping out from behind a curtain in the hatch of the ship, it's that odd bearded bald man we saw earlier, watching as a cosmic storm laid waste to the Robinsons' camp. I wonder if that's a cosmic curtain to keep the cosmic storms out and keep the oxygen in and the space dust out also. That alien technology is just amazing. Oh, boy. Well, the stranger pauses at the top of his gangplank and begins to shout commands in a strange language to his excited dogs. After a few stern, unintelligible words, the ferocious beasts calm down, then take up ready positions on either side of the visitor's spaceship. 
With the commotion over, the stranger's face changes from irritation to a very agreeable expression as he approaches Smith and Will, who are still recovering from the shocking welcome they got from Spot and Fido. Smiling and laughing with delight, he begins speaking to them in the same alien tongue he used with the dogs. Neither we nor the boys can understand him, but his friendly manner suggests that, unlike his dogs, he's happy to have guests. And based on most of their previous experiences with aliens, Will understandably asks, Don't you speak English, sir? The visitor quickly grasps Will's confusion, and with an aha-ha, he turns towards one of his tables and picks up yet another familiar cone-shaped device. Did you recognize that one, Kurt? (laughs) Oh, yes. The metal dunce cap from Wish Upon a Star that allows you to wish into reality whatever you think of. Actually, this is one of the few times the recycling department actually made sense. He must have wished to speak English. So now we know where the alien in episode 11 bought his, although the original was an upgraded model that performed even more functions. Ah, that's a nice background story. It all fits together perfectly, doesn't it, Kurt? Yeah, a little footnote in the comic strip if they were to do it that way, I guess. Well, I'll just note, it's 10 minutes in and we've already got two major recycled props, but okay, go with the flow, go with the flow, go with the flow. Well, the visitor places that device on his head, and it begins to flash and hum for a few seconds, and a worried Dr. Smith says to Will that he's afraid they'll never be able to communicate with the strange visitor. That's when the man removes the cone from his dome and replies to Smith in perfect King's English, Oh, yes, you will. Walking back over to the boys, he explains that the device is his language duplicator. It allows him to speak any tongue in the firmament. Grinning now from ear to ear, with a grand flourish of his hands, he introduces himself. I am the traitor at your services, sir. Uh, How do you do? I'm Dr. Zachary Smith from the planet Earth. Uh, This is young Will Robinson. Smith seems absolutely delighted now. Perhaps he's subconsciously recognizing the traitor as a kindred soul, eh, Kurt? Yeah, well, he may think he's a kindred spirit, but he'll soon learn he's way out of Smith's league. Exactly. Well, the trader's very happy to meet them, noting that, my, they are a long way from home. We are indeed. You know, that was an interesting detail. He seemed surprised to hear they were from Earth, even though he knew they spoke English. So either he was pretending to be surprised, which makes you suspicious about his motives, or he didn't know that English was native to Earth, or he was suggesting that other planets also spoke English. All these options kind of make you wonder, don't they? They do. We'll ask the trader where he comes from, and his answers set off alarm bells. Me? Why, I'm from everywhere. A citizen of the whole galaxy, that's what I am. I don't know about in space, but whenever I hear someone use that citizen of the world line here on Earth, Kurt, I smell a rat. You know, I thought it was a subtle reference to the devil, who is omnipresent and basically everywhere at once. In fact, in the Bible, they call him Legion, because he's everywhere. That's interesting, yes. Shades of the old keeper, huh? Yes. The alien deceptively says he was beginning to think he was alone on the planet, adding that there are two things a trader loves. It's good company and good business. Based on their beaming expressions, both Smith and Will are being taken in by the trader's act. Uh, Well, we could certainly provide the good company. The trader forces a smiling chuckle, replying, Oh, he certainly can. Will asks the visitor what kind of business he's in. He answers by inviting them with a wink and a nod to take a tour of his store. But before they take a step, Smith reminds their host about those vicious guard dogs. <laughs> who right on cue bark a warning 
The trader issues another stern alien command to his guard dogs, and they instantly turn docile. He tells the boys that they are perfectly safe now, and adds his pets are superbly trained specimens with the most magnificent pedigree from the planet Zoldi. He adds for emphasis that he traded a molecular assembler for them and considered it a bargain. Well, the boys try to act impressed, but they seem a little overwhelmed by all this. Well, I was just surprised to learn that my first pet wasn't really a German shepherd dog, but rather a Zordi shepherd from outer space. <laughs> All this time I've been laboring on the misapprehension. Indeed. Yes, yes, Mr. Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Curious, Smith and Will follow the trader into his canopy-covered merchandise bazaar. His tables are stacked with a variety of unusual-looking items for sale. The sheer amount of goods is staggering, but the trader explains being well-stocked with quality wares is the secret to success in business. Yes, perhaps, but engineering your own instant supply shortage in a captive market doesn't help either, does it, Kirk? Yeah, really. Not since the white man peddled firewater to the engines <laughs> as a merchant had such a perfect product for the perfect customer. But our merchant is in no hurry to pop his trap. He's going to take his time and build up to it, and he'll get his customer to actually mention it first. It's true. I mean, he really is pacing himself here. That's great. Based on what I've seen of this guy so far, though, I'm thinking he's kind of just like an intergalactic version of Mr. Haney from Green Acres. You remember whenever <laughs> Mr. Douglas's tractor mysteriously broke Mr. down? Mr. Douglas, how would you like a tractor that actually works? I've got... Yeah, he was great. I love... He was my favorite character from Green Acres. Oh, he was perfect. He, and, you know, the tractor would break down and mysteriously out of nowhere, Mr. Haney would just appear and happen to have the right part at the bargain price. <laughs> and the way uh, and the way Mr. Douglas would just always just keep his anger, you know, on slow simmer because he, he hated dealing with Haney, but he knew he had to. <laughs> Well, pausing in front of a stack of silver spheres in various sizes, Will picks up a soccer ball-sized one and asks what it is. The trader smiles. Oh, it's a truly marvelous invention from the planet Deo. Intrigued, Smith snatches the sphere from Will and exclaims, Oh? <laughs> the trader invites the wide-eyed Dr. Smith to press the button on top of it and see what happens. Hesitating for a moment, he gives in to his curiosity and slaps his palm down on the switch. <laughs> which causes the doctor to vanish with a pop. Seeing Smith disappear causes the trader to erupt in haughty laughter. Well, Will acts a little panicked, asking, where did he go? The trader assures him that their friend is still present. He's just invisible. If he wants to become visible again, all he needs to do is squeeze the molecular sphere again. Dr. Smith does, and in an instant, he pops. Back into view. <laughs> back into view with a surprised good heavens you know lost in space loves those cheap free special effects you know popping in and out of view with a simple film edit but i have to admit the notion of an invisibility toy for kids must have been a real crowd pleaser in the 1960s for that adolescent audience i mean what kid wouldn't dream of such a device oh think of all the mischief you could get into with that one kurt oh yeah i want one for christmas mm-hmm Smith carefully returns the ball to the stack and they move along down the table. Will asks about another unidentified instrument on display in the trader's show floor. We recognize it immediately as the view screen device the trader operated at the start of this tale. When asked what it does, the trader admits that it's a device for controlling the weather. But when Will reaches for one of the control knobs, the alien gasps and then cautions him to look, but please don't touch. <laughs> 
He might raise a storm. Smith remarks that it's too bad they didn't have it earlier today. They could have diverted a frightful cosmic storm. With mock concern, the trader answers, Oh, how unfortunate. Perhaps you'd like to trade me something for it. Smith seems interested, but Will cuts him off with a no thanks. It's too late anyway. The damage is already done. Ah, yes, so it is. Dear sir, what we really need is food. Oh, well, why didn't you say so before? My spaceship is practically overflowing with delicacies. He leads the swooning Dr. Smith over to his space-age pantry, then begins to rattle off a string of irresistible edibles. I have the most succulent steaks in my preservation unit, the most tender vegetables. Oh, stop. I I can't stand it. The sweet melons. Melons? The choicest pastries. Pastries? Candies covered in rich chocolate. Go oh, the pain. The pain. <laughs> Giggling, the trader says they can all be yours. Sounds great, but Will asks what price would he ask in exchange? Well, they have a whole spaceship full of articles. Surely they can find something to bargain with. Hmm. Well, that answer makes Will ask warily, how did he know they had a spaceship? Realizing he's made an unfortunate slip, the trader quickly covers, saying, uh, Oh, well, I uh, naturally assumed that uh, you got there the same way I did. <laughs> Smith's appetite is apparently overriding his normally suspicious mind because he's totally uninterested in questioning the trader's story. He's ready to get down to brass tacks and bargain for the trader's cornered market of delicious food. He asks, when can they start? Turning serious, the mendacious merchant replies, at their earliest convenience. He advises Smith and Will to go discuss the matter with the other members of their party. He'll be along soon to see what kind of arrangements they can come to. As they depart, comically avoiding the resting guard dogs, the over-eager customer Dr. Smith reminds the trader to make it very soon, adding, I'll be waiting for you, sir. After they've left the area, the camera returns to the smiling trader. Laughing, he says to himself in a sinister tone, you are mistaken, Dr. Smith. You are not waiting for me. I am waiting for you. Ah, now this is another one of those he's the devil inferences. He's got the sinister asides, I'm waiting for you. He's got the goatee, he's got the everything's for sale motif going on. He even has the hounds of hell present. This guy reminds me a lot of my favorite villain from my favorite classic horror film, Curse of the Demon. It's about a magician who becomes the leader of a devil cult and controls his followers with curses that call forth the demons from hell. His name was Professor Carswell, played by British actor Nail McGuinness, and he not only looks, but sounds and acts very much like Tor and Thatcher. They both play a similar character, a devilish rogue that you delight in watching. If you like moody horror films, it's a must-see, and you actually end up liking the villain and dislike seeing what horrible fate befalls him in the end. Oh, and by the way, the premise was recently reused in the 2009 Sam Raimi movie, Drag Me to Hell. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that was based on that. Yeah, I like Curse of the Demon. It's very atmospheric. That's great. Well, later that night outside the Jupiter campsite, our castaways are sitting down at the picnic table for their dinner. Things are looking up. Instead of only pills and water, Judy announces they managed to whip up some hamburgers made from dehydrated green beans. Oh, sadness, oh, sorrow. Zachary Smith, gourmet, epicurean, reduced to a meal of fodder. What do you expect, Smith? Pheasant under glass? Would that it were. Well, you seem to be the only one that's complaining, Dr. Smith. And with good reason. 
If you'd listened to me, we wouldn't have to be forcing down this substandard food for survival. We would have plenty of proper victuals. Yes, I know. We could be living off the fat of the trader, couldn't we? Precisely. Oh, now, Dr. Smith, we have already discussed this and come to a decision. Come on, now, please, sit down and eat your dinner. Now, we can get along without making any deals with the trader. Sure. There are more important things in life than just food. The ignorance of that remark is excusable only because of your extreme youth. Good food is one of the important joys of living. At that moment, we hear the voice of the trader from off screen. Well said, Dr. Smith. Trader, at your service. The next microsecond, he pops into camp. With a flourish, he introduces himself to the group, announcing that he's at their service. Most of the castaways appear more uneasy than startled, all except for Dr. Smith, who's delighted. That trader suddenly appearing is a little bit startling, but in my humble opinion, he didn't teleport. He had already revealed that he has an invisibility device, so he was present there earlier and he was spying on them. And we know this because he responds to a comment made before he appeared. So he was there all along and basically stalking his prey. You know, that's interesting you say that. I mean, I I agree with you. It's always unnerving when they do that, when you hear the voice first before you see the person. But I have to admit, whenever I saw this scene before, I always assumed that the traitor had teleported into the camp. But I guess it would make just as much sense that he was invisible and eavesdropping, like you say. I want to hold that thought for a little bit. I want to bring this up later again in the story because I think it plays into a later scene. Let's let's revisit that, as they say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Please don't rise, sir. It's a pleasure to meet you. I appear to have arrived at an inopportune moment. You are eating. That is a matter of opinion. Fortunately, I have everything you could possibly need to replenish your larder, madame. I know. Dr. Smith has told us. Then let me show you a sample of my wares. With all the showmanship of a magician, he gestures with his hands and voila! A large, juicy, roasted turkey pops right under their table in front of Dr. Smith, who gasps with joy. It does look yummy, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh, yes. (gasps) (laughs) Now, if you will make a list of your needs, we can get down to business. We can get to that later, sir. First, let's discuss this magnificent bird. Very well. (laughs) What am I offered for it? Come, come, there's no need to be shy. Would you give that laser pistol of yours in exchange for the turkey, young man? No deal. Oh, a pity. I was offering you a bargain. Looks like a kind of primitive weapon, but I could probably have got rid of it somewhere as a curiosity. I have an idea, Mr. Trader. I know we can come to some sort of agreement about this beautiful bird. But meanwhile, a full stomach makes for a happy disposition. Let's eat it first and discuss it later. Dr. Smith, you must realize that as a businessman, I cannot deal in promises of payment. Now, Mr. Robinson, can we not, (laughs) as they say, talk turkey? I'm afraid not. Not today. Or for that matter, not tomorrow either. What a pity. I I understood that you were short on food and water. We are, but we'll get by until our garden's fully grown. Surely we can at least discuss the matter! It's no deal, Smith. When we get our new water conversion unit built, we won't need anyone's help. I see. Well, that's capital. Then, 
If my services are not required, I will leave you. And if you should require anything, I will be at my store. And with that, he pops out of camp, but for a moment, it appears he forgot that big, beautiful bird. Smith starts to carve off a slice, but before he can dig in, the turkey, knife, and fork pop out of sight. Leaving a frustrated Dr. Smith literally empty-handed, Maureen attempts to soothe Smith's disappointment, telling him the turkey was probably tough anyway. There are no tough turkeys, madam. Some are just more tender than others. You know, I thought the Robinsons were being remarkably polite to the trader, considering he was trying to so obviously manipulate them, showing up at dinner time with delicious smelling food as well as beautiful looking food and placing it right in front of them. But he won't share it unless they trade him for it. It's a bit like showing up at the hospital offering your red blood type for a transfusion to a desperate <laughs> patient, but only at an exorbitant price. Offering mm. food for sale is one thing, but showing up at dinner time to taunt a starving family with aromatic roasted turkey, that's quite another. It is. That's torturous. By the way, this first act contains several interesting bits added whole cloth by Tony Wilson that were not in Slater's treatment, including the protein pill lunch scene, the business with the flashing signs, and having the trader speak in an alien language until he uses the wishing machine to become fluent in English. Those were all nice additions that I think really helped the act out. Yeah, I love those kind of behind-the-scene, you know, trivia pieces, even when it's just opinion or rumor. But sometimes we come across a document source that proves our opinions or the rumors are wrong. And this is probably as good of a time as any for me to point out that I made such a mistake in the last review for the challenge episode when I concluded that the ruler actually shaved his head. I gave this brilliant theory about the stuntman wearing the rubber cap and that you can see the wrinkles in his head because I was convinced that Ansara's head was shaved in all his actual scenes. Rereading Lost in Space Forever by Joel Eisner and Barry Megan, I saw a quote from Michael Ansara himself saying he wore a rubber cap. So for the record, you can believe me when I tell you not to believe me when I tell you something. Well, it's nice of you to set the record straight, Kurt. But, you know, it was hard to tell. It really was. I mean, it was a pretty good rubber cap. It was logical to assume it was the stuntman in that fight scene. So we're not perfect here. We're trying our best, though. You did hold a uh, an informer poll on your Facebook page, and it was right at 50-50, wasn't it? It was. I appreciate you mentioning that. Yes, it was 50-50. Even after one of the listeners, I think his name is Shane Schaefner, he posted some screen grabs that showed you know some wrinkles back there. And even after that, people were still kind of like, uh, I think it's a real shaved head. So it was pretty convincing. Now, if only they could come up with such good convincing toupees, <laughs> us middle-aged men might have some hope for a future. <laughs> Well, with the act drawing to a close, we're back at the trader's headquarters. Though he's been scorned by the castaways, the trader isn't accepting the setback in his business plans lying down. Adjusting some controls on his diabolical weather control device, he mutters that a little storm will change their minds. If there's no market, then make one. This guy kind of reminds me of those news stories you read occasionally about firefighters who commit arson to drum up business card. <laughs> yeah, you're the doctors that give the young patients lollipops for being such good patients and then, then get to prescribe insulin to them years later for diabetes. <laughs> Which I guess yeah. makes them even 
better patients, huh? Yeah. Well, you're always you're always uh, suspicious when you walk into the dentist's office. He's got that big bowl of Halloween candy. So. <laughs> there you go. Do you uh, have to wait? Oh dear. <laughs> the trader refers to the old law of supply and demand as he activates his storm machine, which begins to spark again and sprays out a cloud of mist. Within seconds, another deadly cosmic storm erupts with all of its fury right overhead the Robinson's dinner table. Lightning bolts are crashing all around the Jupiter II, and once more, gale-force winds are blowing away their painstakingly recovered gear. Cutting back to the traitor, he's laughing maniacally again as the view screen presents another spectacle of devastation breaking out over our castaways. The Robinsons abandon their meager meal and scurry back inside to the safety of the spaceship. As the hatch closes behind them, the traitor shares with us his devious plan. With their garden destroyed, they'll have to come to him. He'll tempt them with a little food at first, just enough to whet their appetites, then more. And once they're at his mercy, they'll finally trade him what he really wants. An earthling. Ooh. <laughs> I guess we should be happy he's only asking for one human. After all, the keeper wanted a pair. Remember that? Yeah. Well, you know, not to belabor the Curse of the Demon comparison too much, but Professor Carswell also cooked up a windstorm to demonstrate his power. So it's just another eerie parallel between these two stories. What year did the Curse of the Demon come out? I can't remember. Was that in the 50s? Uh... Yeah, not late 50s, 1957. And it had an incredible monster uh, for 1957. I mean, it puts the creature of the Black Lagoon and all these other men in monster suits to shame. It's just astounding. It was directed by the same director of uh, The Cat People, Jacques Turner or Jacques S. Turner. I'm, I'm never good with the French. I'm never good with any of the <laughs> foreign languages. Yeah, me either. I married a foreigner, so what are you going to yeah. do? Yeah, well, it's a shame that Curse of the Demon wasn't filmed at 20th Century Fox, or we might have gotten to see that costume in an episode of Lost (laughs) Lost in Space. (laughs) Yes. Then again, maybe it's a blessing, because we would have got to see it over and over and over again. Painted different colors, with bows in its hair, and who knows what else. Oh, Lord. Well, all this leaves us wondering, which one of our castaways does the traitor have his eyes on? We'll have to wait until we return from station identification to learn the answer. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act 2, it's the next morning. Dr. Smith and Penny are on their way to call in the trader. Beaming with anticipation, Smith has a small piece of equipment in hand, which we soon learn is Penny's beloved tape recorder. Apparently the wily doctor has conned the dear child into generously swapping it in exchange for some of the trader's gourmet delicacies. They pause on the edge of the trader's settlement. Before they go further, Smith cautions Penny to allow him to do the negotiating so they can get the best possible deal. (laughs) Oh boy, this spells trouble. Acting a little unsure, Penny asks Smith if he's sure they're doing the right thing. Oh, absolutely. Now come along, my dear. Once they arrive, 
The planetary peddler makes a quick examination of their offer. He puts on an earnest show of being interested, but this really can't be worth that much to a merchant who deals in language duplicators and vanishing devices. Still, he goes through the motions, examining it carefully with, of all things, a jeweler's loop. You know, one of those little monocles they use to study gemstones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) His pleased demeanor is infectious. Both Smith and Penny are beaming in anticipation. The trader closes the machine's case, declaring with some friendly giggles that, oh yes, yes, it's very nice, very nice indeed, it's lovely. Smith opens the bidding, asking the trader what he will offer them for the article. But the trader's smile disappears, advising patience. Hasty decisions lead us into error. But Smith's ready to eat now. There's nothing to think about. After all, this is a simple business transaction. Perhaps, or perhaps not. The trader then innocently asks who is the owner of this pretty thing. Before Penny can reply, Smith interjects with a lizard grin that the tape recorder belongs to the girl, but he's acting as her negotiator. That revelation changes the trader's attitude. He flatly offers absolutely nothing. He does not trade with children. Smith's completely crestfallen. Why, he's never heard of such a policy. Penny solemnly assures him that she won't change her mind. Nevertheless, that is his policy. With the matter closed, an oily smile returns to the trader's face. As a consolation prize, he gives Penny a fantastic stick of candy that changes flavor by the day, claiming the candy will last as long as she remains young at heart. Wow, that sounds like a uh, everlasting gobslobber from, you know, Willy Wonker. It does, it does, yes. Dr. Smith jealously eyes the candy, and for a moment I thought he was going to snatch that from the dear child's hand. But before he has a chance, the trader sends the delighted child on her way, telling her with a chortle to have a good time. As she departs, Penny pauses for a second to ask if Smith is coming along. But before he can respond, the trader answers for him. Uh, Not for a little while. Dr. Smith and I have some things to talk over. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yes, uh uh-oh, yes. After the girl is skipped along out of earshot, without her tape recorder, by the way, Dr. Smith, now wearing an equally oily smile, turns back to the trader. Smith compliments the trader's generosity while helping himself to a piece of that miracle candy, but the trader cautions it's been many years since the doctor was young at heart. As such, it would be best if he puts the candy down. Smith coyly asks, why? Does he object? (laughs) Oh no, not I. However, nodding to his guard dogs, he says, but they do. And right on cue. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the chained guard dogs erupt with vicious frenzied barking at Smith, which causes the frightened would-be thief into placing the candy back on the shelf. No sooner done than the dogs calm back down. Smith chides the alien over his dog's unruly behavior, but he quips ominously that in his store, the customer isn't always right. With everyone calm and happy, the trader tells Smith that he believes they could do business. Nothing would please him more, but since he has nothing to barter with, the alien will simply have to extend the doctor some credit. And the camera cuts back and forth between close-ups of these two smiling rogues who are now face-to-face at close quarters. It was really fun to see. Mm-hmm. Wearing a duplicitous look of concern, the trader says, Yes, he is sympathetic to Smith's dilemma, but then he innocently asks, What about the robot? Why not trade the robot? And Smith feigns shock at the suggestion. Oh, no, no, he couldn't do that. Turning his back to the trader, he takes a few steps away, 
With his scheming eyes cutting side to side, Smith piously explains that the robot is not only his friend, he's like a brother. Playing along, the trader pretends to understand, yes, but it is a pity. He was prepared to make an excellent trade. With his back still turned on the trader, that bait causes Smith's eyes to widen. Smith follows the alien with his ever-widening eyes as he strolls absent-mindedly over to his food lockers and casually pulls a jumbo ribeye steak out of the freezer. The tables have quickly turned. Now it's the tricky trader whose back is turned on Smith. Inspecting the succulent cut of prime beef in his hands, he remarks that even though the robot is a little primitive by his standards, he does have a customer who collects such antiques. This scene is delightful because we are privy to certain knowledge that the characters in the scene are unaware of each other. We know Smith is a liar, and we know that the traitor is a liar, but we also know that Smith doesn't know that the traitor has his number and that the traitor is such a liar. So, Or that the traitor is scheming to trick Smith, as revealed in his conclusion to this scene. So it, it's fun to see these two men work their manipulating magic on each other. Oh, it's great. This, this is really great stuff here. Well, that dangling bait is too much for Smith. Wetting his lips, he scurries next to the trader. Looking over the alien's shoulder, Smith makes a few desperate counteroffers. Perhaps uh, you'd be interested in something else. We have a wonderful vehicle called the Chariot. No, I no. don't. Well then, perhaps a radar-controlled weather station. No, no, only the robot. That's the only thing I'm really interested in. Oh. Overcome by cravings for the merchant's goodies, Smith peers hungrily into one of the lockers full of food. The trader's practically got the hook set now. He offers one final temptation to Smith, saying, If you could manage to trade that machine, I'd give you all the food you could possibly eat. For how long? A week. Make it two. Ten days. Twelve. Done. <laughs> You're a shrewd trader, Dr. Smith. Yes, sir. A natural instinct. Oh. I have an ancestor who had quite a reputation as a horse trader, oh. but he suffered a severe business reversal. Jealous rivals accused him of stocking stolen merchandise. Utterly ridiculous, of course. Yes. How unfortunate. What happened to him? Well, he... Smith starts to answer, but involuntarily bringing his palm up to his neck, he stops himself. I think I'll tell you the story some other time. <laughs> I wonder, what do they do with people that steal horses in the Old West? <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> While trading the robot in return for a 12-day supply of food, Smith certainly wasn't thinking long-term, was he, Kurt? Yeah, and he's certainly not thinking about what the reactions back at the Jupiter 2 are going to be like. But it was brilliant on the trader's part because it's the one thing he could have traded that would have gotten everybody of the camp mad at him, right? Mm -hmm. And then ultimately force Smith to make a deal with the devil, as you say. <laughs> yeah, and of course, he also knows that Smith hates the robot. So, I mean, <laughs> he's playing off of two emotions there, the lust for food and the disdain for the robot. Oh, it's great. And now, sir, I'd best go back to the camp and round up the robot. Uh, doctor! It well, Smith's in a hurry to get back to the ship to retrieve the robot, but before he departs, the trader reminds him not to forget Penny's tape recorder. Uh, this is yours, ah, I think. Yes. You're quite sure that you'll have no difficulty in persuading him to come with you. Wearing an exaggerated smile, Smith assures the trader that the robot trusts him implicitly. None whatsoever. 
The robot trusts me implicitly. Oh, yes. Like a brother, eh? <laughs> it's been a real pleasure to do business with you, Doctor. The feeling is mutual, sir. <laughs> a good day to you. Good day. Once Smith's gone, the trader decides to celebrate. He sits down in front of a table spread with some exotic dishes and begins to talk to his loyal guard dogs. Munching on a cocktail weenie, he laughs about how Smith was willing to sell out his brother, the robot, for 30 pieces of vittles. <laughs> I hope the trader has some kennel ration for those dogs, because I don't think it's nice to tease your pets with food like that, Kurt. No. In any event, it appears that the trader has found his earthling, eh, Kurt? Yes, he has, and up until now, the trader has seemed very shrewd, but of all the Robinsons, Smith seems to be the least valuable. I mean, he's not only the oldest, least attractive, and least reliable, but he's also one most prone to injuries. In fact, I don't know what he'd be good for unless the traitor is literally the devil and especially appreciates Smith's deceptive talents. Yeah, that's a good point. He does seem like like an unlikely choice. But on the other hand, I mean, who else is corruptible of that crew? <laughs> <laughs> Later that night, as the act is drawing to a close, Dr. Smith emerges alone from the Jupiter II, approaching the robot who is silently standing watch, donning an innocent, angelic expression. He makes an off-handed remark about how lovely the night is, but he gets no reply from the robot. In a pious tone, he tries again. It would appear that you and I are the only ones away. At that, the robot spins his torso about and quickly rolls ten feet away from Smith, keeping his back to the spurned doctor. Obviously irritated at the bubble-headed boobies rebuff, he forces on another mask of sweetness, then saunters over to the robot's side. I just couldn't sleep. The robot turns his back on Smith again, answering, You're probably suffering a guilty conscience. Irked by the robot's insolence, Smith drops his sweet face, barking, What do you mean by that remark? Proving that he's indeed thin-skinned, B-9 says, I'm referring to our last conversation when you insulted me. Smith puts the virtuous mask back on. He gingerly steps to the robot's front side, then tries to soothe his hurt feelings. No, oh, good heavens. You know I didn't mean that. Thinking that the matter was settled, Smith returns to the topic of the lovely night, inviting the robot to go on a little walk with him. The pouting robot answers sternly, No thank you, and for the third time turns away from the doctor. Undaunted, Smith saddles back up. The exercise would do us both good. You're getting a little roly-poly standing around so much, you know. (laughs) Roly-poly. You know, I lost it at that roly-poly comparison, you know, because... (laughs) That's like the one bug the robot resembles. It's a roly-poly. They're both gray. They both have the armor. And that accordion rubber that the robot uses on his arms and legs looks very similar to the the pleats and the roly-poly's exoskeleton, you know? Not to mention, his midsection does look rather portly, even though it's impossible for a machine to gain weight. But, yeah, that just made it more funny, I thought. Oh, it was great. It was just perfect. I love it. All that stuff is great. But the robot flatly answers that he's particular about the company he keeps, and he's not going to make nice until Dr. Smith apologizes. 
Irritated at being forced to accommodate the cackling Claude's sensitivities, he has to force back another insult, swallow his galaxy-sized pride and give in. Summoning all his acting prowess, the good doctor makes nice. Even if it's insincere, he says the magic words, I apologize, which satisfies the appeased robot. Now they can go on their little walk. And I just love the interaction, the funny, it was funny, the back and forth between the two. It kind of reminded me of one of those classic sitcom scenes where the husband screwed something up. Sometimes he doesn't even realize what he did wrong. The wife's upset with him, so she keeps turning away from him until he finally admits that he was wrong. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely. It, it reminded me of the Honeymooners with Jackie Gleason and his TV wife. Remember exactly. their, lo- their love-hate yeah. relationship? One of these days, Alice, bang, <laughs> zoom, you're going to the moon. Well, as we go to break, the two reconciled friends head off for that refreshing evening stroll. But the robot may not like what he's about to walk into because Dr. Smith pauses for a moment and the camera closes in on his face, which now wears a look of devious satisfaction. Guess we'll learn more when we come back. Oh, yes. Lost in Space, brought to you by... My dog's bigger than your dog My dog's faster than yours My dog's better cause he gets cameration My dog's better than yours My dog's smoother than your dog My dog's cuter than yours My dog's better cause he gets cameration My dog's better than yours My dog's longer than your dog My dog's braver than yours My dog's better cause he Kennel ration, it's the real thing. The lean red meat he wants, the other good things he needs. Canned fresh, cooked fresh, to stay fresh, juicy, tender, and moist. My dog's prettier, smarter, taller. My dog's better than yours. Kennel ration, in a can because it's the real thing. When we return from the commercial to start Act 3, it's the next morning. Will Robinson is searching through the boulders, calling out for the robot. Eventually, Will winds up back at the trader's headquarters. The galactic merchant is busy using a feather duster to spruce up his wares while he sings a strange alien song to himself. He greets the young Robinson with a smile and a welcoming tone. It's a nice detail how they maintain his alien language, you know, in the song. But after a while, Lost in Space stops making any effort to have the aliens use foreign languages. They just automatically speak English, like they did on the supposedly more realistic Star Trek. You know? <laughs> but, but I appreciate that they added that touch. And I had the feeling that when they started ignoring the language barrier, we'll notice the plots and a lot of other details start getting a little thin as well. Yeah, but I have to say, I thought Torrin Thatcher did a great job doing the alien. That was one thing I noticed. His his alien language sounded realistic. You know, he sort of barked it out, a little clipping mm-hmm. tone and everything. I liked it. Will immediately asks the trader if he's seen their robot. But before he can respond, Will's eyes widen, and he rushes around the trader's display cases where we see poor old B-9 standing with an alien sign draped around his collar. And furthermore, he's tied down literally... <laughs> with a ball and chains. Will says to the robot he's been looking all over for him. The robot responds in a despondent tone that he is here, but as you can see, unable to leave. Will reacts with alarm and tries to unchain his friend from that big iron ball, but it's no use. 
The traitor steps up, duster in hand, which causes Will to ask him, what's he doing with their robot? But poking that duster in Will's chest, he tells him that he is mistaken. The robot is his now, and he's for sale, as the alien sign clearly states. Yeah, clearly states if you're literate and alien gibberish. (laughs) (laughs) Will looks both worried and peeved at this turn of events. He's not yours. How did you get him? Uh Uh-oh. With a look of satisfaction, the trader lets the cat out of the bag. He made a trade with Dr. Smith for the robot. Will doesn't believe it, but the robot confirms it is true. He has been betrayed. Will's very angry now. He warns the trader, just wait and see. They'll get him back. The trader answers the young man with a grin and a shrug that, well, everything he has is for sale. They only have to pay the price. Will tells the robot, not to worry, Dad will fix all of this. The robot sadly replies that he hopes so, but the trader isn't happy with this conversation and pulls the poor old robot's power pack out mid-sentence, just as he said that he also wasn't happy here. With that, B9 slumps over pitifully, which only makes Will feel more helpless. The trader scolds the young Robinson, telling him he'd prefer that he didn't talk to his robot. It wastes too much of his energy. Will solemnly vows to return and then races out of camp to get help for their friend who's been sold into bondage. The trader grins, casually dusting our boobies bubble. (laughs) You gotta love how, you know, this character, the trader, he is a sophisticated planner. We know that he wasn't after the robot. He's after Earthling. So he's not a guy who plays checkers. He's a guy who plays chess and deals in long-term strategies. And now we're sitting here wondering, okay, now how's the robot going to get him to the Earthling? So Mm -hmm. it's really fun to watch this. It's the art of the deal, as they say. Yes. (laughs) That evening inside the spaceship, the Robinsons listen as Will retells the terrible situation that the robot's in. Marine can't believe that Dr. Smith would do such a terrible thing. Really? (laughs) I can't. Mm -hmm. John firmly answers that they're in a critical situation. There's not one piece of equipment they can spare to trade for the robot. Just then, we can see Smith through the viewport walking back into camp. Penny bursts into tears and runs to her cabin. She never wants to speak to their Jupiter 2 Judas again. And that goes double for Judy, too. The camera pans over to the weapons locker, where Don has discovered Dr. Smith's secret stash of goodies. He calls John and Marine over to see the case full of delicious edibles, including Smith's favorite, jumbo cans of pork and beans. (laughs) Wow. You know, if they get this mad finding his cans of hidden food, imagine how upset they'll get when they search his cabin and find the freshly gnawed remains of the bloop. <laughs> Although they might have a hard time identifying it, since Irwin had all the teeth yanked out. <laughs> yeah, where is Debbie? Debbie's missing in action. She's been conspicuously absent during all these proceedings. <laughs> she knows when the food is scarce, it's time to be scarce. <laughs> That's funny. Oh gosh, I didn't think about that, but yes, I'd get out of there. <laughs> Poor Debbie. Don quips that he thought Smith was putting on weight, and he's ready to build a scaffold for Smith. But John says, like it or not, they're stuck with him. True, adds Marine, but if so, at least they can have as little as possible to do with him. That's just when the good doctor strides into the ship through the open airlock. He starts to apologize for missing dinner, but then runs face to face with the other three adults wearing looks of disapproval. 
You know, you gotta admit, Smith shows some real kahunas hiding his hidden food in the weapons locker of all places. It's almost like he's daring the crew to turn those weapons on him after they find out what he's been up to. I mean, what's this guy thinking? (laughs) Yeah, that didn't make much sense. Well, noticing Major West holding his ill-gotten food supply, Smith pivots quickly. He's been out searching for the robot. Has anyone seen him? No one responds, but Marine disgustedly turns away and walks out. Acting confused, Smith asks John, What's wrong with the dear lady? Did they have a tiff? John doesn't dignify that with a verbal reply. Instead, he shoots Smith a death look and follows Marine. Worried now at being given the silent treatment, Smith demands to know what's going on. Why is everyone leaving? He's not contagious, you know. Don also somehow holds his tongue. Wow. (laughs) Instead, he harshly shoves that case of food into Smith's chest and follows the others down to the lower deck, leaving only the disappointed young Will standing across the room, staring at the unnerved Dr. Smith. Still holding his box of goodies, he rushes over and asks Will, What's the matter? Now, at this point, it appeared to me like Smith genuinely didn't understand why the others were ostracizing him. I mean, that seems a little hard to believe, but that was how Harris seemed to be playing it. Did you get that impression, or was he still just acting? You forget, Smith is a jailhouse lawyer. Even when he's 100% guilty, he's not going to act guilty until he's either convicted or given a plea deal. And <laughs> y- you can bet that if he, by some way, manages to beat the rap and avoids either of those two options, he would never apologize or show any shame, but he would instead probably gloat and rub everybody else's nose in it. In fact, he'd probably write a book about it like O.J. Simpson did and call it If I Did It. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, oh dear. (laughs) Gosh. Will bluntly explains it to Smith. You traded the robot, you Benedict Arnold. Then he too abruptly turns away from the doctor. Looking as if he's been cut to the quick, Smith turns towards the camera, looks back down at his box of food, and swallows a lump in his throat. For a second, I thought we might see tears. Ah, well, you must have cosmic fever. Unless he's terrified or in some sort of physical pain, the only tears Smith ever sheds are crocodile tears. Yes, you're probably right about that. Next morning, Will's outside the ship, lying on the airlock ramp, organizing his special rock collection. Dr. Smith approaches, then sits down next to the boy, staring over his shoulder. Being shunned by the other castaways has apparently become too much to bear. Dr. Smith pauses, then asks Will if he can please speak with him. Will doesn't acknowledge the doctor's presence. Instead, he pretends not to notice him. Desperate for a response, Smith begs the boy to please talk to him. With his back to Smith, he replies, All right, but make it quick. I just wanted to say, I deeply regret what has happened. A lot of good that'll do. Will it get the robot back? The doctor sadly admits that his need for food got the better of his good judgment. He just couldn't help himself. Sure... Will understands, acidly commenting, it was just too tough for you. Appearing genuinely contrite, and I say appearing, Smith begs for forgiveness. If there's anything he can do to make amends, Will says, yes, get the robot back. Seeing a ray of hope, Smith asks if that will make them friends again. Well, it would help. He'll do it first thing in the morning. That causes Will to jump up. If he really means it, he should go to the trader now. You know, Will is actually coming across as a better negotiator than Smith. I mean, (laughs) he's not giving anything up. You know, he's really sticking to his guns. Yes, exactly. Smith says he'll go now, but then what he really wants is some encouragement from Will. If he follows through, will they be friends again? 
I guess Will's been burned by Smith too many times, like you say. He sticks to his guns, telling the Doctor only if and when he returns with the robot. Oh dear, he'll have to do some very fast and fancy negotiating with the traitor. But springing to his feet, he declares, Never fear, he'll do it. Then he marches out of camp, leaving Will standing there with a guardedly hopeful expression on his face. Now, did you notice that Smith doesn't take any of his food stash to return to the trader? And he doesn't take <laughs> any weapons either, you know? So what the heck is he going to negotiate with? We'll, we'll just have to wait and find out. Next, we're back at the trader's camp store, which appears quiet. The camera pans up from that ball and chain wrapped around the robot's tread box over to the edge of the clearing, where we see Dr. Smith coming to the rescue. The trader's guard dogs greet him with a few barks, hello. He nervously replies good morning to them as he slips past. Wearing a self-righteous expression, he calls over to the still deactivated booby with the good news that his savior has arrived. You'll be pleased to hear I've come to take you home. <laughs> Getting no reply from the mechanical Montebank, he mutters, Bah! He works his way around the trader's display cases over to the robot and continues to berate the silent ingrate. Then he notices the robot's power pack is out. He's about to rectify the situation when the robot's smiling new owner appears from behind, slipping up on Smith. He's delighted to see his favorite customer once more. Smith explains that he wants to talk about that broken-down old has-been of a robot. He wants him back. The trader asks what Smith will offer for him. Nothing, but couldn't the alien merchant possibly extend him some buy-now-pay-later credit? Sounds like a bad way to do business to the trader. But Smith counters, he thought under the circumstances he might grant an exception. You see, he realizes that he made a terrible mistake when he traded the robot away. With a look of pathos, he hugs the inactive B-9, cuts his eyes back to the trader and declares, He's more than just a machine to me. He's my friend. Oh, believe me, I do understand your problem, but I'll pay you back sometime. You have my word on that, sir. Yes, I, I wish I could help you. I realize the difficulty, but is there nothing that you can offer in exchange? Feigning severe sorrow and placing his hands over his heart for emphasis, the doctor tells the trader that unfortunately... All I have is what you see before you, Mr. Trader. The trader looks appalled at the very idea. You mean... Oh, no. Oh, that'd be quite against my... I mean, what would the Traders Association say if they ever heard? I'd be in real trouble. What is it? Surely you can work something out. But weren't you suggesting that you should trade yourself? Myself? Good heavens! You must be joking. Now, don't worry. Don't get excited, Dr. Smith. Of course I didn't mean that you should trade yourself right away. I mean, not swap yourself immediately. Good heavens, or sometime in the future, say, 200 years from now. I'm just loving this scene. If there was ever any doubt that the traitor is a proxy for the devil, all debate ends during this exchange. The traitor is playing Smith like a Stradivarius violin, manipulating his customer to broach the subject of nothing to trade except himself, then appealing to Smith's greed by suggesting terms that seem impossible to collect, which anyone who knows about the devil should remember that the devil is in the details. But Smith is too focused on cheating the traitor to stop and consider those details. He thinks that the traitor is a fool but we all know who the real fool is. Indeed. Smith recovers. 200 years. <sighs> well, now, 
That's not so bad, is it? <laughs> of course, it's quite ridiculous. I, I'd never be able to collect, but, uh, well, a businessman has to show a loss on his book sometimes, doesn't he? Eh? Oh, Mr. <laughs> Trader, you are a real gentleman. <laughs> May I shake your hand, sir? Then you agree? Oh, I certainly do. Oh, splendid, splendid. Well, I, I'll get the contract. Yeah. What contract? Well, it's a mere formality. After all, I have to have something to show a record. You know how these these income tax people are? Oh, yes, indeed I do. Reassured by that, Smith agrees and follows the trader over to a small bar height table. The alien pulls out an ordinary-looking shoebox-sized device, placing it in front of Dr. Smith. He instructs Smith to place his right palm down on the surface of the box. Smith starts, then hesitates for a second. So the trader helps him out by not so gently pressing the doctor's hand firmly onto the device. In an instant, it hums, lights, and even emits some steam around Smith's hand. Unsure of what's happening, the trader calmly tells the doctor it's done. He may lift his hand now. When he does, we can see a perfect outline of Smith's hand sunk into the surface of that mechanism. The trader gives Smith the robot's power pack, declaring that the deal is done. The robot is all his again. That was a subtle but great effect, having the steam come out from his hand. It made it look as if it was dry ice or some sort of hot plexiglass mold being made of his hand. It's very futuristic, and yet almost like he was placing his hand on the Bible and taking an oath. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I thought, a Bible oath, yes. And did you notice that Smith said to him as he carried the power pack back to the robot, he said, I'm in your debt, sir? You know, truer words were never spoken. Indeed, yes. Well, from the top of that contract device, the trader picks up the thin tablet-sized pad, which has Smith's handprint embossed on it, and begins admiring this worthless contract. This goes unnoticed by Dr. Smith, who scurries back over to the robot, as you said. When his power pack is restored, the robot's first words are, Oh, at last. (laughs) Now I'll attend to you later when we get home, you wretch. The camera cuts to a close-up of the smiling trader. For a man who just got swindled out of a robot, he seems awfully pleased. If we had any doubt, glancing at the contract, he mutters to himself, Signed, sealed, and I shall take delivery very soon. Later, with the act nearing a climax, we're back outside the campsite witnessing a scene of innocent fun. Dr. Smith, the robot, and the three Robinson kids are enjoying a delightful game of catch with a volleyball, while the parents act as spectators. Everything seems to be going splendidly, but just wait. Things are about to change dramatically. Penny misses her turn to catch, which causes the ball to bounce off towards the rocks at the edge of camp. Apparently, Dr. Smith's back isn't bothering him today because he quickly volunteers to run after the errant ball. Before he can recover it, the grinning trader walks out from behind a large rock with the ball in hand. Don't you think it's a little unnerving how this guy's always so jovial and happy and grinning? (laughs) Yeah, well, that plus the fact that he seems to be stalking them, you know. Did you notice the irony in his opening line? He says, Ah, Dr. Smith! Playing a game of catch, I see. Which, of course, is the exact same game he's playing with Smith. Yes. 
Well, uh, yes, uh, just doing a bit of exercise. Well, it's very important to me that you should remain in good physical condition. That odd remark causes a look of concern to cross Smith's face. John and Marine approach, and the trader explains, I happen to be in the area, so I thought I'd drop by and say goodbye. Oh, are you leaving? Yes, there is an important trade fair being held on the planet Tauren. I must attend. We'll have a pleasant trip. Perhaps we'll see you again sometime. Oh, you're going to see a great deal of me, Dr. Smith. You are going with me. What? Yes, I've decided to exercise a contract I have with you immediately. Well, I thought your contract with Dr. Smith wasn't effective for another 200 years. That's what you said. I remember every word distinctly. A verbal agreement isn't binding, Dr. Smith. You should have read the small print in the contract you signed with me. You tricked me. You said you wouldn't collect for 200 years. Now or later, what does it matter? You owe a debt and it must be paid. Supposing Dr. Smith refuses to pay, just how do you intend to collect? There are ways. But Dr. Smith is a human being. You just can't buy and sell him. Why not? He is an item, a commodity like anything else in my fair. I won't go with you, and you can't make me. Uh, we shall see. Well, I expect that you want to say goodbye to your friends. I'll call back for you later. Oh, a word of warning before I leave. I have no quarrel with anybody here. My business concerns Dr. Smith alone. But if you should involve yourself, I shall have no alternative but to destroy you. John looked deeply troubled by the threat, but no one makes a response. We'll just have to wait until after this word from our sponsor to find out if the traitor really means business, Kurt. Wow. And you know, I, I have a feeling this is one time the sponsors aren't going to convince anyone to buy their product, no matter what the item or commodity, <laughs> especially <laughs> if they offer generous credit terms, <laughs> don't you think? Yeah, that's a good point. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by... Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com. When we return from the break to start the final act, night has fallen outside the Robinson campsite. And this was funny because we open on a circular sandbag machine gun nest next to the hydroponic garden. The things they bring on that spaceship never cease to amaze me. Yeah, with all that stuff they brought along for the ride, the old machine gun, the pith helmet. It wouldn't surprise me if they also hauled those 60 or so sandbags filled with sand. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All the way to Alpha Centauri. There's so much space on that third level of the Jupiter, too. Wow. Ironically, sand's the one thing they didn't need to bring with them. <laughs> <laughs> Inside that revetment is a dozing Dr. Smith, complete with that World War I-style doughboy helmet. Will tiptoes out of the ship and over to the doctor. He whispers several times to get his attention, but Smith's sound asleep. You know, they send you to the firing squad for falling asleep on guard duty, Kurt. <laughs> asleep? Me? Why, good heavens, no. I was only resting my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Will creeps around next to Dr. Smith, tapping him on the shoulder finally does the trick. Our Sergeant York is startled out of his slumber, grabs his laser rifle and shouts, Halt! Halt! at an imaginary intruder. After the doctor catches his breath, Will asks if he's all right. He was until the boy nearly scared him half to death. Will says he couldn't sleep, so he came to check on the rattled doctor. Smith's grateful, but now that the coast is clear, his next priority is, as usual, his stomach. He suggests that they share a little midnight snack and ask the boy to hand him his lunchbox. And that was another laugh, because his lunchbox was literally a large cardboard box of civil defense emergency supplies. And this was not a prop. This was an actual U.S. civil defense agency ration box. You know, the kind they used to distribute around the country during the Cold War in case the Soviets launched a sneak attack. Oh, wow. I don't know what kind of wink that was by the producers, but somebody was signaling something there. Yeah, well, nowadays it would be product placement that they would have used a, you know, a vintage lost in space lunchbox, you know, for sale. (laughs) (laughs) Those were great lunchboxes. They were like my favorite lunchbox of that era with the Cyclops and everything else. It was beautiful. Will snarks that it was Smith's weakness for food that got them into all this mess in the first place. Smith starts to object, but before he can... The dead silence is broken by the sound of German shepherds. I mean, Zoldi shepherds barking. Uh-oh. <laughs> you don't want to be accused of a Earth-centric bias. Exactly. Will grabs the laser rifle, asking Smith if he heard that. Petrified, he says yes, and he wishes he hadn't. Right now I was wondering, where is the robot? If I were Smith, I'd have my backup out there. Well, maybe he was out taking a walk trying to work off some of that roly-poly belly of his. from the rocks at the edge of the camp the trader emerges behind his two leashed guard dogs he advances towards the pair ordering will to put down the weapon the boy stands his ground as smith timidly warns the trader not to come any closer or he'll fire the trader firmly states that he's ready to leave with his property smith belongs to him and he must come Then he holds up the tablet with Smith's embossed handprint. The device glows and hums. The trader declares that Dr. Smith signed the contract, and now it is time to pay. Suddenly, Smith seems to be under a trance. Without uttering any further words of protest, he raises his right palm, rises from behind the sandbags. Then he gracefully slides over the barrier, slowly stepping zombie-like towards the trader. Will's alarmed, but no matter how many times he shouts for Dr. Smith to stop and come back, it's no use. The trader smiles, turns around, and then departs the Robinson's camp with the enchanted Smith, following deliberately a few paces behind. It seems the trader was right about how he'd collect payment. There were ways after all, eh, Kurt? I hear, and I must obey. Mm. Will sets down the rifle, which I thought was kind of weird, and then he cautiously follows after the trader and Smith, but at a respectable distance. Holding the electronic contract up as he goes, the trader and his dogs lead Dr. Smith through the nighttime terrain, eventually winding up back at his headquarters. Standing next to his spaceship, the trader waves his hand at the still glowing tablet. It stops humming, and Smith is released from the spell. He quickly realizes where he is, telling his owner that he has no right to do this, and he demands that he be released immediately. By now, Will has caught up with the men. He hides behind some rocks, eavesdropping on their conversation. The trader joyfully informs Smith that he has no rights and can make no demands. Please, sir, couldn't you just write me off as a bad investment? 
The trader intends to swap Dr. Smith off at the Tauron Trade Fair for a colossal profit. Oh dear, that sounds dreadful to poor old Dr. Smith. The trader orders his guard dogs to look after Smith while he attends to other matters, such as packing away his gear for blastoff. Smith's too frightened of the dogs to make a run for it, but with the trader out of sight, Will, still concealed behind a boulder, decides to take a chance. He picks up a couple of perfectly sized and conveniently located sticks that just happen to be a few inches from his feet. Then he carefully throws one towards the far edge of the area. The sound attracts the attention of Spot, who runs over to check it out. So far, so good. But Smith is confused because he can't see that it was Will who started this game of fetch. Will then throws the second stick, which causes Fido to now run over and join his canine cousin at the far edge of the camp. You know, all this uh, stick throwing and dogs chasing after them may sound ridiculous, but on the screen it was very convincing. Those dogs were actually good actors. The only part that seemed contrived was when Will starts giving these loud stage whispers to Smith, which the dogs somehow don't seem to hear. But then again, you know, maybe Zordy shepherds don't have the same keen hearing that our earthbound dogs do. No, but they do have some cool collars. Yes. Yeah, those big. Yeah, the big tusks. They look very reminiscent of the fangs hanging off of the monster, the hairy monster in uh, Magic Mirror. Remember that? <laughs> I do. Yes. With the coast clear for the moment, at least, Will gives the still puzzled doctor a little psst to get his attention. It works. So he tells Smith in that loud whisper to join him over by the boulders. And don't let the dogs hear us either. <laughs> Smith joins him, but he's clearly still rattled. Will says they need to get back to the Jupiter 2, but Smith's sure they'll never make it. Those beasts would tear us apart when they catch us. Would you rather stay here and let the traitor take you away? Speak of the devil. (laughs) They can see that he's now returned to his ship, and he's not pleased to discover that both his prize, Smith, and his guard dogs are missing. The sight of his captor's return shakes Smith out of his funk. Come along. What are we waiting for? They get out while the getting is good, running back to the ship as fast as their feet will let them. But by now, the trader has recalled his outsmarted, whimpering guard dogs. Enraged at the dogs for letting his prize get away, he angrily orders them to go after his property, then releases them for the hunt. And apparently the dogs understand English, too. That was one little bit, you know, that they understand English. Maybe you put the wishing machine on their heads, I don't know, but... Exactly. Savagely barking up a storm, the dogs follow the scent and race after our pair of castaways, with the trader loping along after them some distance behind. Cutting back to Will and Smith, the foot race has already tired out the doctor. I guess he's not in peak physical condition after all. No. With the sound of the barking dogs getting closer, unfortunately Dr. Smith is lagging well behind Will. He's all worn out and simply must stop for rest. By the way, there's a little blooper here too. Here we, here we go, the nitpickers from Alpha Control, but... <laughs> I did notice it, so I'm going to point it out. As Dr. Smith pauses, using a large styrofoam boulder for support, you can see that he actually pushes it a couple of inches across the sand. On the other hand, maybe he's in better shape than we think, Kurt. Hey, you never know. They claim that when you're really scared, the adrenaline gives some people superhuman strength. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. We've got a rationalization for everything, don't we? Of course. Smith takes a few more steps, but despite Will's urging to keep moving, he really must stop and sit down for a minute. He says he's done for, urging Will to leave him behind and save himself. But our boy genius has a better idea. Despite the protests, he pulls Smith's boots off his feet and then throws them a few feet away in the opposite direction. Hopefully, Smith's stinky shoes will throw Spot and Fido off the scent, stalling them at least for a bit. Now can he go on a little further? No, let the traitor take me. 
but Will won't take no for an answer. He pulls Smith off his butt and drags him a little further. But Smith's simply too exhausted, and his feet are too worn out to take another step. Just when it looked like all hope was lost, we hear someone approaching. Smith gasps in terror, but then turns around to see a very welcoming sight. His good friend the robot rolls up just in the nick of time. Oh, thank heavens I'm saved. My dear, dear friend, how glad I am to see you. But the robot hasn't forgotten his friend's betrayal. He turns his back on Smith, saying, I beg your pardon, sir. I don't believe we've met. How dare you! This is no time for nonsense, Ninny. I need you to protect me from the traitor. Even Will seems a little shocked at the robot's attitude, but he's not giving an inch. You must have mistaken me for someone else. I do not know you. What? You know, we've noticed before the evolution of the robot's sense of humor. Now we can add biting sarcasm and vindictiveness to his long list of growing human traits. It may not be logical, but it sure is fun, and it makes us bond more with this mechanical man. Because he's more like us. He is. Yes, he's a very human personality. By now, the traitor, contract in hand, has caught up with his unchained beasts, who, sure enough, were fooled by Smith's abandoned boots. The alien is enraged once more. They've been tricked. With a little scolding from their master, the dogs pick up the trail again. As they continue after their quarry, the traitor vows he'll soon recapture his runaway earthling. Back at the Jupiter 2, the hatch opens. John and Don emerge, finding Smith's post abandoned. They start to search for him, but just then, Will and the robot roll back into camp. Smith dives behind the sandbags, dons his doughboy helmet, and then quickly they bring John and Don up to speed. Smith explains that the contract he signed has some special power over him. Don raises his rifle in readiness, muttering, Let's see how much power he has against this. Oh, thank you, Major. At a time like this, we see our true friends. Don tells Smith to save the soft soap for later. Just then, we hear the yelps of the traders approaching guard dogs. It's almost time for the ultimate showdown. But remember the alien's warning. If they interfere, he'll destroy them. Now, it was at this point, Kurt, I want to hearken back to our earlier discussion about the trader popping in and out of camp. Was it the Invisible Man parlor trick or was it teleportation? I think you made a good case for the parlor trick. But as I mentioned earlier, I always assumed it was teleportation, transportation. So this made me wonder, if he could do that, why did he have to chase after Smith on foot, allowing him all that time to mount a defense? And if he could teleport himself, couldn't he just beam Smith back to his ship? So I was really confused. Maybe I'm making your case for me. Well, no, I mean, it's funny that you're second-guessing yourself because now you got me second-guessing myself because before I said he had to be there invisible because he heard the comments before he appeared. But it's also possible that he was using that device that, allowed him to change the weather, which also allows him to see what was happening at the Robinsons. Maybe it also allowed them to hear what was happening at the Robinsons. So that's a possibility. But on the other hand, the trader mentions that the fair that he's about to attend is on the planet Tauron, which -hmm. is where the family from episode 10, The Sky is Falling, came from. And teleportation was their specialty. So you would think the trader had access to that technology. But on the other hand, if he could teleport, why did he bother using that tiny spaceship to get around? Then again, on the other hand, maybe that's why he needed Smith to go with him to Tauron so that he had something to trade for a teleporter and upgrade his means of transportation. But on the other hand, we're already up to four hands so far, and I don't think (laughs) we've encountered any four-armed aliens so far in Lost in Space. So this entire line of reasoning is probably as accurate and convoluted as my theory about the rubber cap, you know, and last (laughs) week. It's just, it gets so 
complex. You just can't keep track of it anymore. But it is interesting how both of us, I mean, you can see the same scene and you interpret it a different way the first time you've seen it. And it's only after you sit there and think about it and watch it a couple of times, you start imagining, now, wait a minute, what about this? And you know, as we talk about it, there's one other little nitnoity thing I want to point out to you. So what about the turkey? Yes, tur- yes. Uh, that, that occurred to me, too, while we were talking about it. That definitely seemed to teleport <laughs> right there. Right, because otherwise, if it was sitting there, you'd think they would have smelled it before it actually became visible. And that but was anyway. another thing we didn't mention. I mean, it was bad enough that he had the thing appear there. But can you imagine how hard it would be to resist that thing if you're smelling it right in front of you? Wow. Absolutely. And and we're getting close to Thanksgiving, so I'm thinking all about turkey now, yeah. so that's a good... <laughs> but I actually kind of enjoy it. It's like when one contradiction is counteracted by another contradiction, which is counteracted by another contradiction, and by another contradiction, and they're all in the same episode. It's just like, it's almost like a magician's trick. They just, they confuse you with so many things, 99% of people don't even stop to think about it, because it's just like, it's just it's too complex. <laughs> you just accept it. You better. Go with the flow. Go with the flow. This is a go with the flow. This is a go with the flow. But I do enjoy talking about these things, so that's good discussion. Well, getting back to the action here. It isn't much longer before the traitor and his beasts appear. He thanks Professor Robinson for capturing his runaway property. Your property? Questions John. The traitor reminds them that he has a contract with Dr. Smith. You tricked me. You said 200 years. The traitor smirks back with satisfaction, as he said before. Smith should have read this small print. The whereases and the howsoevers, etc. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. This is this is why you can never out-bargain the devil. He has all those tricky whereases and howsoevers. <laughs> <laughs> That's when the robot interjects. Dr. Smith was tricked. From the very beginning, this alien resorted to unfair tactics. It was he who destroyed their food and water supply. What? Smith indignantly jumps up from behind the sandbags. The others also step forward in astonishment. The robot spills the rest of the beans. The trader used his weather machine to create the cosmic storm, which left them short of supplies. In other words, this guy needs to be reported to the Better Business Bureau, Kurt. Oh, what a great idea. Just call them and... Oh, dear, I forgot. <laughs> Your communications don't reach that far, would it? Pity. <laughs> Unashamed, though, the traitor boasts that he got what he wanted, and that's all that matters. Hmm, who does that remind, yeah, <laughs> remind really. you of? Clutching Will yet again as his human shield, Smith cries, I won't go with you. I won't. The traitor's eyes narrow. He raises the tablet with Smith's handprint, which once more starts to glow and hum. Come along, Dr. Smith. And the doctor falls back under the traitor's power. He lets go of Will, raises his right hand in the air, then starts to move trance-like towards the unscrupulous alien retailer. Beaming with content, the traitor bids them all good night and goodbye. But before he gets far, Don shouts for Smith to move out of the line of fire. The men raise their guns, but before they can shoot, the robot pushes their weapons aside, then fires a quick energy bolt from just one of his electrified claws. Scoring a perfect bullseye on the trader's contract. Thanks to Quick Draw McB9, that high tech contract bursts into flames, causing the trader to drop it where it lands, utterly destroyed. That was some fancy shooting, and it told us something I never knew. The robot is a left handed southpaw there, Kurt. Yeah, left clawed. <laughs> yes. 
It appears that the robot broke that ironclad contract because the overjoyed Smith comes back to his senses and then rushes back over to join his true blue friend, the robot. Just to make it crystal clear, <laughs> Professor Robinson declares that the contract is now null and void. Addressing the fuming alien, the robot announces, Dr. Smith will keep his original agreement with the traitor. What? You traitor! <laughs> the robot clarifies, he will be your property in 200 years. Exactly so. But don't call me. I'll call you. But the furious traitor hasn't given up yet. He thunders, with or without the contract, Smith is his. Then he lunges towards Smith and the robot, snarling for his dogs to fetch his prize. Frozen in horror, Smith clutches Will again for protection. But the robot warns the traitor's dogs that, I will destroy. But instead of more energy bolts, he emits a high-pitched sonic tone that sends the animals running for the hills and the traitor chasing after them. Ah, well, I guess the Zordy Shepherds do have sensitive hearing after all. I guess so. Professor Robinson announces confidently that they won't have to worry about the traitor again. Hmm, now how can he be sure? <laughs> yeah. We can't disagree with Professor Robinson because he's never wrong, I suppose. Never. Well, it's time to get inside. Lingering behind is Doughboy Smith and his protector, the good old robot. And he can't resist getting in one little dig before they turn in. The robot quips that this was one time the doctor got more than he bargained for. No, spare me the comedy, you deplorable dummy. So once more, we have a light-hearted tale with a happy all's well that ends well ending. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, give us your thoughts on the space trader, Kurt. Wow. Well, for a story with no monster in it, I liked it a lot. Maybe it's because the trader played the biggest monster of all. Satan, Satan, Satan. <laughs> <laughs> and he does it with such panache. This is exactly why I adore that similar character in Curse of the Demon, and I suspect it's also one of the reasons we all enjoy Zachary Smith so much, not in spite of his manipulative behavior, but because of it. It's fun to watch those devilish characters scheme and manipulate other people around them. Of course, none of us approve of that behavior when it happens to us, but it's kind of like driving by a car accident and hoping no one was hurt while at the same time slowing way down just so that you get a good look for, the, for any of the blood or carnage. We can't help ourselves. We enjoy it. When somebody else is the victim, that is. Now, one thing I'm a little worried about, and maybe this is because too many of my, my brothers were lawyers and I worked at a law office at one time, but the last thing they acknowledged to the trader was that Smith was obligated to fulfill his contract in 200 years. Now, a year is defined as the time it takes a planet to circle its sun. And in episode 5, The Hungry Sea, we were told this planet had a flat elliptical orbit that went from the far end of the ellipse to the end that hugs the sun in a matter of hours. And that's a quote. So that means that a complete orbit takes maybe 24 or 48 hours max, which means that 200 years would be at best 400 Earth days. Now, you know, I know we never see the drastic effects of this daily orbit again in the entire series, but be that as it may, unless they enter some sort of time vortex, Smith better get ready to fulfill that contract with the traders sometime in season two or maybe early part season three, if he's lucky. 
So there's plenty of room for this trader to make a uh, a return scene and loss in space. That's a great loophole in the contract. Yes, what is a year? Good one. When you're dealing with the devil, it's always good to read the fine print. But, you know, uh, overall, this wasn't one of my top 10 episodes, but it is a must-see, and it's very enjoyable to watch. Oh, yeah. Well, I can't really tell you exactly why, but I've always had a soft spot for this one. It's definitely one of those uh, alien comes a calling formula episodes, and there's plenty of contrived plot points from the conveniently placed water tank at the beginning to the way the robot is MIA at one point, then Johnny on the spot at the end. And of course, we're getting the silly Smith for most of this one, what with his artist garb and the doughboy act. But for whatever reason, I've always been charmed by the interactions between Smith and the trader. And one of the top selling points for me is Torrin Thatcher's portrayal of the space trader. I thought he was excellent. Yes. And it was obvious that both actors were having fun doing those over-the-top exchanges between the two devious characters. It would have been nice if they could have avoided so many of the recycled props uh, and sets in a single episode, but we can also find ways of justifying all that if we really want to. So, Yeah, in a way, you know, it's almost like after a while it gets to be so common and so predictable that it's almost like little Easter eggs. You you actually start enjoying it, you know? <laughs> I know, I know. But I did think the plot was engaging, even though, like you say, there's no monsters, there's no real heavy suspense. But I thought it moved along well. And I also liked how the family tried yet again to teach Smith a lesson and hold him accountable for his betrayal of the robot. Yeah, like you say, it's not top 10 or certainly not top five, but it wasn't ridiculous for this kind of episode. And I've watched it before and I'll I'll watch it again. So I'm yeah. glad we both enjoyed it. I was kind of surprised, though, at the end there that uh, Major West, of all people, was was literally willing to risk the lives of the entire crew by threatening to to shoot yeah the the traitor we don't know what the traitor could do in retaliation for that it seemed to be taking quite a gamble and you would have thought west of all people would have said well good riddance <laughs> you know but exactly interesting exactly it was interesting i could see how in the heat of the moment you know you might just say hey to to hell with caution i'm not going to let this guy get away with it well, maybe he's holding out for his chance to kill Smith himself. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to let the traitor have the pleasure. <laughs> Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. Dr. Smith, Will, and the robot are trudging along through the rocky desert terrain. Will has a hoe, Smith a basket, and the robot a shovel. Rounding a boulder, Will gasps. There's an ornate imperial crown resting on a royal pillow. Smith sees it. But what could a crown be doing here on a rock in the middle of nowhere? Will is about to touch it, but Smith stops him with a lecture about property rights and minding their own business. Still, those gems do appear to be as large as hen's eggs. Smith can't keep his eyes off all that beautiful craftsmanship. Composing himself, Smith commands that they get back to their Truffle hunt. <laughs> yeah, if there's one planet in the galaxy that's not going to have shrooms, it's going to be that dry, dreary planet. Oh. After taking a few steps, Smith happens to remember that he left his basket behind. Will offers to get it, but Smith declines, 
he'll get it in a jiffy. They should just press on without him. When they're gone, Smith returns to the crown. Pausing for a moment, he gently lifts up the crown. Now what should he do with it? Well, you'll never guess, folks. He places the crown in his head, but no sooner does he than it starts to fire electrical charges on Smith's stunned noggin. He reaches to pull it off, but before he does, the freeze frame comes in to remind us to stay tuned next week. Same time, same channel. You know, Kurt, they say, heavy is the head that wears the crown, but Smith's the last character in the galaxy that would find it hard to accept being treated like a king. What do you say? Uh, Well, I'd say if I had to serve a king, I'd prefer a more compassionate one than Dr. Smith, like, say, oh, Kim (laughs) (laughs) Jong-un. Oh, boy. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 24th episode of Lost in Space titled His Majesty Smith. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.